only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Recorded live. January the 14th, 2016. Here we are halfway through the month of January already. From Coolidge, Arizona, Book of Revelation. We're in Lesson 16 tonight. And we're going to get right into it. We've got a lot to cover. Next week we are planning, depends on how many times I get interrupted tonight, Oh, I thought there would be some reverberation on that. <clears throat> but uh, uh, we next week we, we plan to look at uh, the 666. And, uh, and then if we have time, I want to go through the book of the chapter 13, read most of the chapter, and then close it off and go to move the following week into chapter 14. We may not make it all the way through that next week. So tonight we're, we're looking at an expansion of verse 1 of chapter 13. And we probably, um, just to, to get in tune with it, the, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. We had a discussion on the pronouns there. We don't need to go into that tonight. Because our focus is I saw a beast. And the beast is in what gender? Everything a beast has, everything a beast says, everything a beast does must be given to it. Why? Because it's in the neuter gender. It's just an it. It's like the word demon, and we have demons speaking, we have demons doing things, but they have to be given that because they're all in the neuter gender. And it's like the word spirit, as always in the neuter gender as well, has nothing of itself, and that's why the adjective when it's referring to God's spirit is uh, what? Holy. These folks are just getting it all together. So <clears throat> in verse 1, Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And we want to talk about these seven heads tonight. That's specifically what we're focusing in on. So let's go back to chapter 17 of the book of Revelation, and we're on the note. I know we don't often follow them, but we're going to pretty closely tonight. In Revelation chapter 17, I know we're jumping ahead. Let me caution you, we're not going to deal with everything in chapter 17 tonight or we'll never get through it. We're just going to deal with those things that deal with the seven or eight kings. 
All right, chapter 17, the book of Revelation, and verse 10. And uh, so we go back to verse 9. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits, and, and they are seven kings. Then we have an interesting little, some interesting comments here. Five have fallen. Now, we, we know by this point that the beast coming up out of the sea represents the fourth empire of Daniel. We all, we're all there on that page now, aren't we? And what was the first empire? Babylon. Kingdom was Babylon. The next one was? Medo-Persian. Medo-Persian Empire. The next one was? Greece. The Grecian Empire. And now we have the fourth book. So we know precisely what time we're in. We're, we're at the beginning of the Roman Empire. Just as talked about in Daniel, he uses a little different language here and there, but essentially Revelation is pretty well bringing that down into our uh, frame of mind here. <clears throat> so there are seven kings, five have fallen, and the five that have fallen, we would consider them as five that are fallen from what? In time I'm speaking of here. Not from position, but five have fallen sequentially is what I want to want you to think about here. Five that have fallen sequentially. So we've got five from the beginning of the empire, from the beginning of the rise of the beast, representing the Roman Empire, the Roman Kingdom. It has five kings that when John is writing, have fallen. They're gone. We're about to go. So there are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, so we've got past tense, present tense, There's one right now when Revelation 17, and by the way, doesn't that place the writer right then and the timing of the book? Folks, the evidence that we've presented hit and miss throughout the study of this book, I don't believe there's any escape from putting it together as being written when we suggested in lesson one or two, the early date, and this is another confirmation of that. So we have five history, one in the present, and one has not yet come. You total those all up, and what do we have? Five, one, and one are seven. And when he comes, he must remain a little while. And, of course, that probably means, however that phrase has been used throughout the book of Revelation, 
According to some, it means at least 2,000 years, right? You know, these things are all going to take place shortly and in a little while, all those kind of ideas. No, we, we know better than that. <clears throat> Must remain a little while. But now the beast, in verse 11, which was and is not, is himself or itself. An eighth. And we're going to have to look at that eighth. So the beast has seven heads, which are seven kings. But now remember that the beast itself is mentioned here as being the eighth. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. And the rest of that verse, in verse 11, he is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven. So there is something about the eighth that takes us in mind that he is really a participant in character and nature throughout the whole process of these seven kings. He's of them all. See that? And that that's, that possessiveness there is very important. And he goes to destruction. And the ten, ten horns, which you saw are the ten kings, and, and of course they have a... Uh, um, a um, diadem for their identity. And what does that tell us? Well, we'll talk about that when we get down to point three today. All right, so we ask, first of all, going back to the notes on number two, because we we discussed number one last week. That's the only thing out of these notes we discussed last week. Um, How many have fallen? Five. And... Who was the first one? Who was the first emperor of Rome? Lana knows that. He's our hero. Augustus. Augustus. And I put dates down. Some of these dates you can contest if you want to. Um, Because there's some variables, but historically it seems like these are holding accurate. And uh, so he was the first Roman emperor. Who, what did they call those who were prior to, uh, uh, to uh, August, uh, Augustus? What was their position in Rome? Do re- anybody remember? Governor? That's not what you're looking for. No. Well, let's 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 move on for now. Um, was it the diadem? You want to get back to that? No, no. The diadem is. Oh, did I not finish that? The the diadem simply means that they had no authority within themselves. That had everything had to be given to them. That's what the word. The diadem, the crown, the crown that's translated uh, from diadem. The uh, the other word is Stephanos. And uh, but Stephanos means that this guy has self, uh, you know, he's, he's he's authority within himself. But the diadem is given to those 
who were client kings. They paid, they trained, and paid for their job. No, no, they're. Uh, I think they're all masculine. So we'll we'll come back to that in number three. Did you have a? That's right. So we got the name there of those that were what they were called prior to the emperors. So the first emperor of Rome of as the empire, emperor empire, is Augustus, and he was from 31 BC to 14 AD. And we read about him in the Bible. Then we have, secondly, you can read the notes. Who's next? Tiberius. And he reigned to 37 A.D. Next. Caligula. Okay. Caius, he's referred to in some books. 37 to 41 A.D. We're getting closer. Now we're down to the fourth one that has gone, and his name was Claudius, 41 to 54 A.D. And then who is the fifth infamous one? Nero. Now remember that the proper spelling of Nero really ends with a N. So you want to remember that next week. And there's a reason why. But just remember that now that we're planting that seed, that the proper spelling of Nero is N-E-R-O-N. Now there is in Daniel, after Nero, he has three others listed in there. So Daniel has 11 whereas we have eight, including the beast, Daniel has 11. And the reason why they're not brought down into John, I mean into Revelation, John's Revelation, is that combined, you'll notice down here the comment uh, about two-thirds of the way down, they passed away within the space of parts of two years. So John didn't count them. They're they're dismissed, non-relative as emperors of Rome. You with me so far? Again, we never ask you to agree, just try to follow along. So then how many in the present? One. And who's that? You folks are catching on real quick. And he was there from 69 to 79 A.D. And um, he is also, if you combine it with Daniel, he was the 11th horn of Daniel. Now how many, so we have now a total of six that we've discussed by name. And you can go into uh, any history book, uh, Gibbons, uh, uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire. You can get all this information, but probably that isn't likely that you're going to do that. 
probably not necessary unless you were wanting to just verify all of this, and you're welcome to do that. So we have how many left to come? We have one left to come, and that's C, letter C of number two, and that's going to be who? Titus, 79 through 81 A.D. He ruled, and it says in the text here, he must remain how long in verse 10? A little while. Now, a little while here then is interpreted uh, historically now uh, for two years and two months and 20 days. Two, two, two. Two, two years, two months, 20 days. That's not a long time. That's considered here as a little while. So we, we're kind of getting an idea what a little while is. There's no way you can put 2,000 years in there, you know, that it's, Yet in our future, or 3,000 or 4,000 years. Well, unless you take out the spaces, then it's 2,200 points. <laughs> yeah, there you go. We could do that. Except that just doesn't jive. So, though there are the eight king, uh, the uh, seven kings, and John is telling us that he's, he's writing this book. Under whom? Vespasian. And so that dates the book when? 69 to 79 in that frame. Is that in agreement with everything else we've said throughout, all the way from the beginning, for 87 lessons now? I think we've been consistent on that. So let's look at chapter seven, uh, 17 and verse 11 and move on down to letter D on the notes. How does the beast figure in? Himself or itself. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth. And by the way, remember what I said when we came into chapter 17, we're not going to deal with all of the things in chapter 17 because we're going to get there. But we're trying to just amplify in uh, what's going on in chapter 13, verse 1, and in that chapter, so we are satisfied there that we're dealing with civil Rome and the kings there, who they are. Now we've got them identified, we've got them named, and that's right out of a history book. So there, there should and ought to be no argument on that there might, there can be a little bit on the dates. But the beast is of one of the seven. Out of the seven. Out of the seven. Is that what it says? Look at that. Out of the seven. Out of the, out of the uh, composition of the seven. This fourth beast himself, itself, represents the composition of the other three. Remember, uh, in, in um, the little earlier part of this chapter, we have the leopard and the bear and, and uh, those things all tying in to that fourth beast 
incorporating things of the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, elements of those that are incorporated in the Roman Empire, but the Roman Empire, the fourth beast, is going to be so different. So different. Remember that in Daniel? We read that last week. So that's the tie-in there. Um, Yes. Oh, is that where you were? Is that where we were just? Uh, what, what, what we were looking for last week? Okay, so now we have the eighth one as actually in the masculine gender. All right, I need to ponder yeah, that for a little yeah, no, bit. I just, I, I, and that's a great, great catch. So now the eighth one. Um, is, of course, all of the kings would be in the masculine yeah. anyway. So in this case, um, <clears throat> so now we have um, personality added to this, this one who is the eighth, who is out of the seven, so he would carry their gender with him. And he goes, and he goes to destruction. Now... That's that's how the beast figures in that out out of the seven heads, out of the seven kings, out of them comes the eighth. And I didn't see the eck there. I, I need to I need to make a record of that. Yeah, there it is, right there. Okay. Out of the seven. Out of the seven. So this eighth one comes out of the combination of the seven carrying with it, uh, as the fourth beast carries with it the elements of the first three empires, this one carries forth uh, from the seven certain elements into his existence. Let's go over to Daniel 7. Now remember what we're doing now, you know, is keep focused if you can. We're, we're discussing what's going on in chapter 13, verse 1, the identity of the, of the uh, seven kings. We now have found in Revelation 17 that there are really eight, but the eighth is not um, like the other seven. It is out of the seven. It is a compilation of the seven in character and nature. And when we get to chapter 17, we'll deal with more of that. But keep that in mind, that the book is being written during which which one? Of Aspatian or the number six, the one who is. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense to the author at all. Let's go to uh, Daniel, what I say, chapter 7 and verse 24. Because I made a comment a little while ago. <clears throat> Uh, verse, let's start with verse 23. Thus he said, Daniel 7, 23, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. And we noticed last week that some, the, the Hebrew word for kingdom can be king or kingdom. But we're talking about four kingdoms here. That's the usage of it here in Daniel. To begin with, it was kings. Now 
later now, he's addressing those kings as kingdoms on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. Compilation of everything they've got, but a whole different ballgame, and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. That's quite a mission. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. That makes how many? That makes 11. So Daniel speaks of 11. Leaving eight. Yeah, but we have to exclude the eight. So we have seven. He left out, um, well, eight plus the three means 11. You're right. Including the beast. Including the beast. And the three, I put them in your notes here, the three that there are left out, they were so busy staying alive. Um, they were ignored by John, uprooted in Daniel, uh, and they were uprooted in Daniel. And all three of them passed away within the space of parts of two years. Not significant. Is that what the latter part of verse 14, uh, 24 is talking about? Um, yeah. Yep, and they become non-existent or non-effective. So let's go to Revelation chapter 17 again. Just moving right down the notes. Verse 8. And uh, so, Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come out of the abyss and go to destruction, and those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life and the foundation of the world, um, and we gave you a translation on that um, way back in an earlier um, lesson, I think two or four or five lessons ago. <clears throat> And uh, and will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Now, with that said, let's move down then to uh, verse 11. The beast which was and is not and is not is himself also an eighth. And this is explaining what goes on in verse 8. An eighth and is one of the seven and he goes to destruction. So what is his end? He's going to be destroyed. Now, let's summarize where we've been real quick. In chapter 13, verse 1, we have the seven kings. Revelation 17 adds the eighth, which is the beast itself. We have five that have been, one that is, during the process of the book, and its authorship, one yet to come, which is Titus, and then the eighth, which is going to be it's going to be the beast itself. Is it going to have a name? Uh, yeah, it's uh, Dominion. Domitian. Domitian, sorry. And that uh, he he was eighty-one through ninety-six. He was out of the seven. And we're going to deal more with that, though, when we get into chapter 17. 
Now let's go down to number three. What about the ten horns? That's in verse 12 of chapter 17. I'm, I'm really doing with more with chapter 17 than I wanted to because, we're, you know, we're going to soon be there, hopefully before spring. The ten horns which you, uh, which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom. They're in holding. But they receive authority. See, they don't have it. They don't have authority within themselves. They're going to receive it as kings with the beast for one hour. And we just cannot bypass verse 13. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. So they were united in that. Now let's go to verse 17 of chapter 17. So the horns were given, the diadems were given power by the beast so that the, so that of the empire. Of, yeah, so that the diadems could give it back to you. So they, um, they had, I think uh, Lana had a, a great, great way of explaining that four or five lessons ago. Do you remember, well, these client rulers? They just had to apply to Rome for their, for their authority, their crowns, their, yeah. their little kingdoms. They had to apply and be approved by Rome. They sat and waited to have their application accepted. So that's a whole different, a lot different than being an emperor, an empire, emperor. All right, now look at verse 17. But before we do go there, uh, let me read the one paragraph here in uh, number three. These are the client kings of Rome. They are kings who have submitted themselves to Rome and therefore have Rome's approval to rule. So it's going to be a delegated authority. Now in verse 17, and he's talking about the ten horns in verse 16, but in verse 17 he, we, we pick up what we want you to hear, that God has put it in their hearts so is God in this thing anywhere? Oh yeah, you know, you know the the story of Revelation is is the story of revenge of God for the apostle the apostles and the prophets. This is this book of Revelation is God's revenge in behalf of the apostles and prophets. The destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple and the shattering of his of the people, of the Jewish people. And their actions completely and totally one hundred percent agree with what was written before it ever happened. That's right. That's amazing. <laughs> it it is that's right. So God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. How does he do that? By having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast for how long? Until the words of God will be fulfilled. 
They're going to be, uh, they have no independent authority. They are sub-rulers, ruling for Rome, but what are they doing? How could God talk about them all the way back from Daniel? And now that God is using them to fulfill his purpose. And, and they will continue doing that until the words of God will be fulfilled. I wonder if the people who were living then understood that. Ruling under sin, weakness, and all the rest as their desires led them. And those that took them over and destroyed them, also working for God's purpose, were moving towards another natural uh, goal of acquiring the city and the land. And probably not liking what they found there when they entered Jerusalem, they just pounded it into junk. And did they? Uh, as a matter of fact, and yes, they did. In one class, didn't we, didn't we go over the fact that what the... Those who took over Rome, those who invaded it, were sickened by what they saw there. When they overtook Jerusalem. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As they overtook Jerusalem, which was being ruled by Rome. Well, when Titus came in, they they were sick by what the Jews were doing, eating their own children. Right. It made Titus sick to his stomach. Yeah, so we... What we're, I, I mean, if I'm getting this right, tell me if I'm wrong. But what we're seeing here is individuals following on both sides, those being taken over, those doing the taking over, following human instinct, human, human, you know, the natural course, flesh, desire, lust. It's, that's true. But it's hard for us to conceive that that's all within God's purpose, isn't it? We have a lot of things going on today that are evil to the core. How many, I don't know what you can do here, but in the Northwest we have forest. You know what a forest is? What's a forest? Trees, a lot of trees, miles and hundreds of miles of trees. Now, if when they get so big, and when you are, are when you're going into a forest to log it, there are ways that you tap the tree, tamp it. And you can you can sound it out to see whether it's solid or not. And you estimate how good that tree is so that you can determine what the board footage is going to be when that tree comes down and you take it to the mill. Because if you can determine that there's rot on the inside, see, there's ways of doing that. So pretty soon, if, if you don't get those big trees out, the ones that the horned owls love. What happens is that that rot just keeps growing and growing from the inside out. And 
And pretty soon, those trees are so rotten that if you get a fire, they just go through. And I mean, the occult burn on the, along the Columbia River is you know, over 100 miles long. That's a forest of rough, rough terrain. And in 1902, there was the occult fire that came in there and just wiped, just wiped that forest out. A hundred miles of forest. Beautiful big stuff. Now it's all grown back up again. <clears throat> but what happens, what happens is that when you get trees that are rotting, then you get insects. And they start multiplying and they get thick and they start eating on the tree as well. So now what have you got? You not only have a a tree that's getting old and ripe from age and rotting from the inside out, but now you've got critters coming in to feast on the rot and to accelerate the rotting of the tree. Socially, the same thing happens. Politically, the same thing happens. I believe that's what ISIS is about. I can't prove it. I believe that they're the insects moving in to the rotted forest. You see the imagery? Not sure it's accurate. But there are systems in the universe on our earth that are just like this, just like what we're talking about here, that the Jewish people had become so corrupt that essentially they were the ones who did what to Jesus? Took the, the one that God had made the stone and they had killed him representing the evil of that people as a nation, not that they weren't individuals, not all of them, but as a whole, they had rotted to the core. And now we've got the insects moving in to clean them up, to finish the destruction. And it says that this will continue for how long? In other passages now, Give me a time frame for a a little while, but uh, specifically the time frame. Forty-two months, time, times, and half a times, 1260. With all those time frames are all referring to the same time. And it says it will continue in Daniel in chapter 12 until the shattering, the people, God's people are shattered, cleaned up. The insects have moved in and taken out all the rot. Good way of putting it. But I think that's what's happening happening in our society today. We we, we want to be careful about saying the wrong thing about people who may be in the cleanup process. You know, we like to get all emotional about it, but the fact of the matter is that. Just like here, we don't know. We have, we don't know. I'm not suggesting that we do, but there, there, there is a, there is always something 
God is not dead. God is always in the process of judging those outside of the church. That's in 1 Corinthians 5. It's not our job to do that. He says, that's my job. Vengeance will be applied to those outside the church when they violate and persecute the church. And I believe that's going on. I don't believe it's the continuation of what we're reading here, but I mean the principle that I'm talking about now is that we have that same, and possibly anyway, we have that same kind of thing going on today. And folks, we need to know that it's the church that God is protecting. It's the church in its purity that God is protecting. And the enemies that come against the church are what God will judge. And to do that, God uses evil people to clean up the church as he did Israel. Now, whether he is, you know, we don't know that. When you're in it, you don't know. But the principle, folks, makes it understandable. If it's understandable now, it's understandable back here that this is what God is doing, and he says this is going to continue for 42 months or for time, times and half a time, or what's the other one, uh, 70, um, what is it, there's weeks. 1270, no, anyway, I, I, my brain isn't functioning quickly here. Um, but all of, uh, for that, and, and it's going to continue until the people are shattered. My people are shattered. Actually, he says, your people, Daniel, are shattered. And it gives you that time frame. And that time frame is repeated in here that all of these things that God is interested in about those people, the time frame is related to that, and that all of these issues will just keep right on going until that is accomplished. And so that's what I'm talking about in verse 17. And our time is all gone. But God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose. You know, in today, we don't know. So let's let's start with that. We don't know. We don't have to know. But it is possible because of other things that God does say that God will always judge the enemies of the church. We know how he functions, but that's right. And that's not our it's not our place to worry about. No. That's his job. And that's what I'm trying to make clear. Good good observation there. So God has put it in their heart to execute whose purpose? God's purpose (coughs) is very likely that the Islamic religion is designed to accomplish God's purpose in doing what? Muslim faith. Well, in destroying destroy the perverted perversion of Christianity would be my opinion. Along there too, yeah. Because when they started, what was their objective was to get rid of Trinitarianism. The polytheism, when Muhammad came across the Euphrates River, he had one. He had his armies. Now the uh, the means was wrong, but they came across the river as an army 
1100 A.D. Well, we're not the means of Rome wrong. What's that? We're not the, we're not the means of Rome wrong. I mean, were they were they oh, were oh. they a couple of good guys? <laughs> they were they were there to weed out, not to be. Uh, oh, the the um, the who the, the and the who I missed the Romans. They, they were there to, to... Oh, well, you know, they had they had gone through all of the uh, uh, crusades, and, you know, and they were they were killing pagans. So Muhammad came in to destroy the Romans because they were polytheistic. You know, they were Trinitarian. The papal system, they came... Their objective was not regular people, but it was, I mean, just the uh, just the Roman Empire. But it was to to kill the people who were of pagan Rome, who were polytheistic, and of course that time was the Roman Catholic Church. Now we don't want to get into too much discussion on this because we don't know anything. We don't know, but it could be see that God's purpose was to raise them up to destroy one of the enemies of the church. We don't know that. But it's likely, folks. It's very possible. We don't know that. It's possible that ISIS is the, is, are the bugs to clean up the rot of a dying forest. And that's our society. I don't know that. But the principle is true. See? So... For God has put it in their hearts. God uses his God uses the enemies of his people to carry out his purpose in relation to those people. To execute his purpose. They have a common purpose. And that's one thing that the enemies nearly always have. There is something that gives them a common bond. Isn't it sad that the church can't have that common bond? They can, but we don't. But the enemies do. The enemies are solid in their unity in what they're against. And they're against the truth. And by giving their kingdom to the beast, until the words of God be fulfilled. Folks, those words ought to go deep into our hearts tonight. That what was going on here was going to continue as it did until God's purpose is fulfilled. That every everything that God has said must be fulfilled. And that's that's the conclusion to what is it, Luke 22, when he says that I, everything will be fulfilled in your lifetime. Isn't that what we've been studying in, in uh, Luke? Let me read it, and we'll close. In your generation. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so these are the days of vengeance. This is Luke 21, 22. These are the days of vengeance. He's talking about the fall of Jerusalem in verse 20. 
He's talking about what happens when Titus comes into town. He's not bringing lunch. Those of you who are in Judea, flee. Get out of, get out of Dodge. These are the days of vengeance. I'm going to avenge the apostles and the prophets. That's talked about in later latter part of Revelation. So that all things which are written will be fulfilled. When? In the time of these days of which he is speaking. And these eight kings were participants to carry out God's purpose. And they had that one thing was in their mind to destroy the things of God and the people of God who had become the enemies of God. And that sounds like I made a big circle there. I didn't mean to do that. Um, But um, they are all used as a part of the destruction of the enemy of God and were fulfilling his purpose as the book of Revelation is portraying to us. Any questions? All right, let's let's close tonight. Next week we will uh, look at the latter part of this chapter and the number 666 and then try to conclude the book out, this this chapter out by uh, giving a quick uh, reading of it with short explanations. Father, we thank you for the time allotted here to study this portion. Uh, Not always easier to stay focused on it, but we thank you for the opportunity and for those who have participated tonight by being here and by being on the air. We thank you for that. And may our hearts have a desire to always be latched in to the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.